Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Good morning, church. Before we get to Jeremiah chapter 36, I'd like to tell you a story. When it was built in 1977, the building you see on the screen in front of you is called the City Corp Center. It was 59 stories, and in 1977, it was the seventh tallest building in the entire world. And you can pick it out in the New York City skyline because its roof is at a 45-angle top. But as base, this is what's really cool about the Citicorp building. The base of the building is what makes this tower so unique. The bottom nine stories of its 59 stories are on stilts. The design originated with the need to accommodate St. Peter's Lutheran Church, which occupied one quarter of the building site since 1905. So as you see the arrow on the screen ahead of you, that's the new church they built it's the city court building is over. Because with the condition that St. Peter's gave city court was that they could build a church, they would build them a new church in the exact same location, provided that they gave them the corner lot. But the building of the company, the company that built the city court, was built, free to build their skyscraper around the church and had access to the airspace above it. This meant that 72 feet of the skyscraper hangs over 1.3 million square feet of office space, which is directly above the church. Now, here's the cool part of how this happened. Nine-story stilts suspended over St. Petersburg Church, but rather than putting the stilts in the corners, they had to locate the stilts midpoint of each side of the building to avoid the church. So having stilts in the middle of each side of the building made it less stable. So the engineer up there on the screen, Le Messieri, designed the chevron bracing. So for every eight stories, he put this V-shaped into its skeleton. The chevron bracing structure made the building exceptionally light for a skyscraper. So it would sway in the wind. We added this tune mass damper, which is a big piece of weight. This was a 400-ton device that kept the building stable when the winds blew. It was ingenious. It's a cutting-edge design, and everything seemed just fine until he received a phone call. According to Le Messier, the, the structure engineer, in 1978, an undergrad student contacted him with a bold claim the building could blow over in the wind. The student was studying this particular building for their undergraduate architectural degree. And they found out that it was particularly vulnerable to quartering winds, the winds that would strike the building at its corners. Normally, buildings are strongest at their corners because they're square. And they're strongest at the perpendicular winds. But this is not a normal building. So the architect accounted for the perpendicular winds, but he not the quartering winds. He checked the math and found out, guess what? The student was right. 
He compared what velocity winds the building could withstand, and it's built already from weather data, and found that a storm strong enough to topple this building hits New York City every 55 years. But that's only if the tune mass damper, 400 pound, 400, 400 ton, had electricity. So if the power goes out, that means the building is even less stable. So the architect realized that during a major storm, during a blackout, it could render this tune mass damper inoperable. And without that thing operating, the storm, power enough to take, the storm powerful enough to take out the building hits New York, New York City every 16 years. So get this. In other words, for every year that the city court building stood, there was a 1 in 16 chance that it would collapse in downtown New York. The architect got his team together, and City Corp coordinated emergency repairs. With the help of the New York Police Department, they worked on an evacuation plan for a 10-block radius. They had 2,500 Red Cross volunteers standing by and three different weather services that were employed 24-7 to keep an eye on potential weather. They welded through the night and quit at daybreak just as the occupants arrived because it was secret. But what happened was still a secret even as a hurricane starts coming up the East Coast. So the public, including the building's occupants, were never notified. Which is whole happened that New York City newspaper was on strike. The story remained a secret until a writer overheard it being told at a party and interviewed the architect. This guy broke the story in the New Yorker in 1995. And we would think that would be the end of the story, but it's not. The BBC aired a special about this city court building. And one of its interview, one of its viewers was Diane Hartley. It turns out she was a student doing her undergraduate story who made that phone call. She says she never spoke with the chief architect, but only spoke with one of his junior staffers. He had no clue about the building, what went on with it, about the welding at night, and about it being kept secret for 20 years. He said one thing to one person. How unlikely is it for an undergrad student to get a hold of a chief engineer at a building that's already been put up that is a hallmark of structural coolness in downtown New York City and say, by the way, you're wrong. It's going to fall over. And then for him to go back and check his math and say, oops. Come to find out, he never even met her. He had what God's asked us to do. Communicate God's word in spite of our circumstance or our audience. He took the opportunity to say one thing to somebody who actually heard it, who had the influence to do something about it, and he did. Now, there's quite the law that he kept it secret. But he did do something. It's in your engineering textbooks and structural architectural to this day, the story of this building. 
But God does the same thing with us. Are you going to take what he says and then communicate it? And are people actually going to listen? So we've been in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a great guy of going and talking to people, and people have not necessarily been really good at listening. So this morning we're going to look at two kings that Jeremiah is asked to go talk to. So we begin in Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah chapter 36. It's on page 539 if anybody needs a uh, story Bible this morning. Jeremiah chapter 36. And as we go through these three chapters this morning, we will read certain sections to keep us up with the plot and the narrative as it goes. And there will be certain sections where I'll fill in the gaps. So we'll start out in chapter 36, verses 1 through 4. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. From the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive them their iniquity and their sin. Write it down, Jeremiah. Get a scroll, and I want you to write down everything that I've told you. We know from this king that obviously it wasn't handed down from King Josiah to his son on how to obediently follow God. But God get, tells Jeremiah, I want you to get a scroll and I want you to write down everything that I've told you since the beginning. At this point in our story, it is at least 20 years. Imagine being close to the end of your career and somebody say, hey, could you uh, write down everything that's happened to you in the last 20 years? Woo! And it wasn't like they had one of them little digital devices and go, oh, no, no. No, Jeremiah had to dictate and had to scroll and that's kind of what the scroll looked like. We would roll it, and we start, went this way and not flip by pages, okay? Remember when Jeremiah started, though, it was during King Josiah's reign. Everything was awesome. There were spiritual reforms going on, and the king was a good dude. He was really falling after God. But this is a really cool spot, and I want you to make note of this. And it's a good thing in your Bible to look and say, this is the one of the few times where God specifically says, write down my word. God's word goes into print. And this is something we take for granted. We have it in about 500 different ways. We have an electronic device. We have it in paperback. We have all this. But this is really big deal stuff here at this time. Jeremiah, write it all down. What was God's goal in writing it down? It's his grace. Look at verse 3. It may be that the house of Judah will hear. So they'll hear all the disaster that I intend to do them so that everyone may turn from his evil way that I might forgive their iniquity and their sin. They may hear and be able to hear and then have an opportunity to repent. From the time God says, hey, you're doing something wrong, I'm calling you to myself, repent, until the time his judgment comes is called grace. He said, hey, Jeremiah, write this down. Take it to them. I want them to repent. My goal is for me to forgive them. So in Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 4, and Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neri. And Baruch wrote on a scroll that at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words that the Lord had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. 
And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. Verse 7, it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath of the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch, the son of Neri, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him without, about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Jeremiah, I want you to do this, God says. Jeremiah can't do this by himself. It's easier to dictate it. Gets an amanuensis, gets a secretary, gets a scribe, and he says, hey, I want you to write all this down. I want you to dictate it. Jeremiah takes what God has asked him to do, and what does he get? Somebody with him. He got, he's not doing it by himself. Jeremiah orders, hey, once we get done writing this, once we get done with this objective, you're not done. It's just not good enough to have, well, I got the Bible in my hand. I got the book of Jeremiah. What does he tell him to do with it? Go. Go read it. Go share it. It's got to be shared. It don't keep this for yourself because God's goal is the same. Look in verse 7. So that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive them. The goal of God getting his word to the people and for the messengers to work with him, to work with those who God is equipping to send out his word, is repentance, is grace. So Jeremiah does, so they do this. <clears throat> Approximately a year and nine months later, the dictation is done. Barak has this, the scroll, and he's a man on mission. God uses him, and he does do what Jeremiah asked him to do. He goes and reads it during a time of fasting. This means that probably there was something really horrible going on, which in the time of Israel history, there is a lot of bad things happening. They're getting ready to be attacked, and so they call it a time of fasting. So at this great national crisis is when Barak picks up this scroll, goes in there, and he reads it. Notice, God to reach people, he uses people to do this. And it's not just one person, it's Jeremiah with his disciple. Carrying God's word and God's message to them. So he reads this, and there's an official there that hears it. Just one official, just one person in the crowd. And he goes to the king's house, into the secretary's office, and he tells five more officials, hey, you've got to hear what I just heard. So these six officials get together, and they send a guy out to go find this guy that was scribed, this Brock guy. And they said, hey, get back over here. Get that scroll. Come here and read it. And guess what he does? He does. Step two, he gets it, goes, reads it. When they hear all the words, they turn to each other in fear. They turn to each other in fear. They've heard God's word spoken. They say, we have got to go report this to the king. So they ask the scribe, they ask Barak, they ask the guy who took uh, Jeremiah's dictation, hey, did you write this down? And he gives credit where credit is due. He said, no, I got it from Jeremiah. I'm like, oh, wow, you got it from him? This is incredibly cool stuff, and we got to tell others about it. But, hey, this may not go over well, uh, you and Jeremiah better go hide and don't tell anybody where you're at. 
So the officials put the scroll in the king's secretary's office. See how this is working and down in the story? So they take the scroll then. These six officials have heard it. And they're like, oh, we've got to tell the king. So we're going to put it in the king's secretary's office. Put it in there. Get an audience with the king. So the same guy they sent to go get it now is, is the six officials sent Brock to go get it. So now they have an audience with the king. And now they have one of the guys, one of the officials who responded really well to it. Now it's his turn to read it. The third person now to read this. So as this guy would read God's word, the king would, as he would read three or four columns, as the scroll was undone, as he would read it, the king would take his knife and cut it. Read some more. And he would cut it. And as he cut it, he would throw it in the fire. Because during the time he was reading it was in the winter. So the king hears it. They're excited to tell him. They faithfully read it to him. And as he's listening to it, he literally cuts it and throws it in the fire. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who were all these words were afraid. Only three of the five original officials who responded in fear tried to tell the king, please don't burn this. The other officials that had heard this story couldn't wait to tell another person, couldn't wait to get it to the king. And when the king is bold enough to cut it and burn it, only three of them have the guts to say, don't do that, don't do that. That's why we read 2 Corinthians. There's a grief that relates to repentance and the grief that says, ooh, I got caught. There is a world of difference between saying, I have messed up, I want to turn on my path and go in a different direction than going, ooh, they caught me. These men had interacted with God's word and were excited about it. They wanted to share it with the king, but when the going got tough, only three spoke out and said, please don't do that. So after he burns it, the king commands his very own son and two more guys and says, go find this scribe, Barak, and go find Jeremiah. Get him. But they're done hid. They're hidden. They can't find them. So move in your Bible now to chapter 36, verse 27, as we pick up the story. The king has burned the scroll. They've hunted down. They're looking for Jeremiah and the scribe, and they can't find him. So God shows up. Verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And considering Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the heat by day and frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster I have promised against them, but they will not hear. 
Do it again, Jeremiah. The king has burned it. And he says, do it again. If this was only as easy as picking up a device and recording something digitally. Remember, it took almost a year and nine months for the time they started the process until there was an opportunity for the scribe to go and share this. This was a lengthy process. Do it again, Jeremiah. And this time, I want you to add these words. You burned it because you heard that the king of Babylon is coming to destroy you. Jeremiah said that a whole lot of times. But God's like, this is why you burned it. You burned it because you don't like what's said in it. So therefore, there shall be no one to sit on your throne, none of your kids. Your body will be disgraced even in death. We're going to leave it outside. Your entire family and your servants will be punished for their iniquity. The city will fall to Babylon, and the people will not hear. You burned it. Okay, same words going out again. This time, add to it, Jeremiah. I'm coming against you. You just regard God and His Word. God's got something to say to you. God will interact with you. God will deal with you. But remember, the goal of His Word is what? Grace. It is to bring you into relationship with Him. This is what's going to happen. This is how you have restored relationship to me. And if you don't, this judgment is coming. It will continue that way clear to the end of Revelation. What part are you playing this morning? Are you excited to hear God's word, but when it comes to action and have to say something in tough circumstances, tough circumstances, you just turn the tail and run? Look at Jeremiah. He hears it. He lives it. He teaches it, and he teaches another. He equips another person to do his ministry alongside him. Look at Baruch. He hears it, interacts with it, reads it, and tells others about it in rough circumstances. Look at the officials. They heard it, they tell others, but when the going gets tough, they turn their back and run. They don't have the confidence there. Look at the king, King Jehoiakim. He hears it, completely disregards it, literally trashes it and burns it, and says, this is nothing for me. Which part are you playing this morning? Which one are you? Even if you're King Jehoiakim, this morning, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with his word. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to burn it. What does God do to illustrate his grace even to that king? Write it again, Jeremiah. Send my word back out there. Illustrates his grace again. And what does Jeremiah do? He doesn't say, God, you know what? This king will never get it. Yeah, I won't know. No, I've we've done this dictation thing for a year. No. God is calling us to go into our mean streets and tell people over and over again, even if they're like, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with that. Let me see your Bible. I'm burning it. I will verbally burn you up with this stupid idea that God loves me, that Jesus died for me, and Jesus has promised to come back again. Let's move to our second king, King Zedekiah, chapter 37. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. 
What's really cool about right here is that Zedekiah is now ruling. God's promise to the king who burnt the scroll came true. You will, your kid is not going to sit on the throne. All this complex names, all it's saying right here is it didn't transfer. So God's word comes true to this king. Babylon has yet to come and take Israel or Judah. But this king is not sitting on the throne. The beginning of chapter 37 is to highlight God's word came true at the end of chapter 36. But guess what's the same about him? No one is listening. Neither he nor his servants nor the people listened to God's word spoke through the Jeremiah the prophet. So now it's Jeremiah's interaction with this king. Pick up in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, The city shall surely be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to this... Well, I'm in the wrong chapter, sorry. Chapter 37, verse 3. King Zedekiah sent Jehokal, the son of Shemuel, and Shephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out amongst the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans were, who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus does the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus you shall say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus saith the Lord. Do not deceive yourselves, saying, Oh, the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you and only remain the wounded men in their tent, they would even rise up and burn this city. So it's take two. Go now and say this to them. So Zedekiah sends a priest, an official, to Jeremiah and says, please pray for us. Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now, Jeremiah is not yet in prison. And Egypt at this time had come up to Jerusalem to help them defend against the onslaught of the Chaldeans who had set up besieged them. So when the Egyptians come up there, they, they, those who are attacking them at the time fled. So it's kind of like, hey, things went good with our relationship with Egypt. But during this time, they're like, hey, send somebody to Jeremiah and get a word from the Lord. And Jeremiah doesn't change his tune. Egypt isn't going to stay. They're not going to be there. And eventually, Babylon's going to return, capture, and burn Jerusalem. How many times do we have people say, hey, could you please pray for us? Could you please pray for me? And you wonder, what is that? Well, Zedekiah here is playing his cards both hands. I want a little bit of God, and I want to figure out what to go here, but if he gives me any information, I'm certainly not going to obey it. And he doesn't, because Jeremiah gives him the exact same answer. Somebody is, oh, man, they got a lifestyle. They have a choices that they make over and over again, and they're like, hey, could you please pray for me? 
And there's a, quite a bit of us at times when you walk alongside people, yeah, I'll pray for you, but just, just repent and don't do it. You think that praying to God is going to fix your circumstances just because we prayed. Now, I'm not diminishing the power of prayer, but I'm also highlighting the, the importance of obedience. This guy, I like Jehoiakim better. At least he was honest. This guy is a manipulator. Hey, Jeremiah, could you please pray for me? He's, given, he's going to give him the exact same message. 20 years, rinse and repeat, same cycle, same message Jeremiah has given. And he can, hey, could you pray for us? Yeah, I will. Okay, yeah, sure. Thing. God told me the same thing. Imagine how short that prayer must have been. So as the story continues, Jeremiah goes to his homeland, which we know by Jeremiah 1.1 is in the land of Benjamin. There a sentry seizes him and says, hey, you're defecting. Jeremiah says, it's a lie. I am not trying to defect from Jerusalem. They don't believe him. So he takes him to the officials who get really upset at Jeremiah. They beat Jeremiah and they put him in prison. So Jeremiah is now in this dungeon and he's there, as the Bible says, for many days. Zedekiah comes back and he has a secret meeting with Jeremiah. He said, is there any word of the Lord? Jeremiah responds, yeah. You're going to be delivered into the hands of the Babylonians. And Jeremiah also, you can see his heart is a real person. This is a real story. Because now he's got the king's attention. He's been imprisoned in a dungeon unjustly for a lie. And he says, what have I done? I would have said that like chapter 1, verse 2. Okay? What have I done? Then he says this to the king. Hey, where are your super prophets to tell you that what you need to hear? Why are you coming to me? Where are all the prophets that are saying, oh, no, the king of Babylon is not coming here? And finally, Jeremiah says, please don't send me back to prison. I'm going to die there. So Zedekiah, being the nice guy he is, he moves him out of the dungeon into a better cell. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to move you out of the dungeon, and we're going to give you one loaf of bread a day. Can you see this guy playing both sides of this? Hey, is there any word? Can you please pray for me? Hey, is there any word from the Lord? Oh, you didn't give me what I want, to ask, want you to say, so I'm going to leave you in prison and give you a loaf of bread a day. Pick up in chapter 38, verse 1. Chapter 38, verse 1. Now, Zephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedalah, the son of Ashur, Jacob, the son of Shemaliah, and Bashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people, by the way, in prison. They've heard this. These officials have heard this, what he's saying. And so Jeremiah is still prophesying, verse 2, Thus said the Lord, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall save his life as a prize of war and live. Thus said the Lord, the city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. 
For this man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. The king Zedekiah says, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Micaiah, the king's son, which is in the court of the guard, letting no water, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. So in chapter 38, we moved, okay? Jeremiah is still doing what Jeremiah does. He's in prison, but he's still doing what he's doing. He has not stopped. So these four officials over here, because he's saying the same thing. The only thing he's adding to it this time, if you want to live what's going to happen, get out of town now and defect and say, I'm going to go join them because that's the only way I'm going to live. So these, these officials go to the king and say, hey, he's, he's hurting morale. He keeps saying that we're going to fall to Babylon. You can kind of see their point. But on the other hand, Jeremiah's been saying this for 20 years. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. They came up, what's the best thing to do to shut this guy up? Kill him. Kill him. So the same, kid, same king who's come to him twice say, could you please pray for me? And then he says, hey, is there any word for the Lord? When he, these guys want to kill him, says, oh, I can't do anything. You guys are the officials. Absconds his authority and says, you guys deal with him. So they put Jeremiah in the prison cistern that's run out of water and it's mud at the bottom. That is a horrible death. The guy's still doing it. The guy's, God's like, hey, I want you to communicate my word to these people. And by the way, in Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, hey, you're not going to die over this. I got you. You imagine being lowered into a cistern way down in with all that mud and all that, and knowing it's dark, and hey, I'm going to die in here. And we're trying to remember back, hey, I was doing what God asked me to do. Where's my dividends on this investment? Where's the people that's supposed to come to know God and follow him and be obedient to this while you're being lowered into this cistern? From a king who said, hey, oh, you guys do what you're going to do with him. Who stabbed you now in the back when he's had these secret meetings with you when you're the religious guy wanting prayer and want to know what God's got to say. Imagine being Jeremiah let down into this cistern. The cool thing is that there's an Ethiopian eunuch who overhears this, everything going on. And he runs to the king and he says, hey, Jeremiah's going to starve in that hole King's like, oh, okay, go get 30 guys and get him out of there. This is the fourth time King Zedekiah's relationship with Jeremiah waffles between just being friendly enough to keep God's prophet alive and being socially and politically approved with his community. So they rescue Jeremiah. So what? Leave him in prison. Pull him out of the cistern that's going dry in a prison. By the way, if you ever worked in a prison and the prison runs out of water, it's not a good thing. So pull him out of the hole, set him out of the hole, 
and say, you get one loaf of bread a day, and we're kind of running out of water. We'll save you. You can see how he's being halfway. Yeah, pull him out of the hole, set him right there and back in prison. Move to verse 14 with me. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you surely not put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hands of those who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surrender to the officials of the king of the Babylon, then your life shall be spared. The city shall not be burned with fire. You and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then the city will be given to the hands of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, But I'm afraid of the Judeans who deserted to the Chaldeans. Least I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. Verse 20. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given over to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. Okay. Zedekiah yet again sends for Jeremiah. And he interviews him for the third time in person. Zedekiah comes to him and says, I want to ask you something, but I want you to tell me the truth. Jeremiah, <laughs> if I do, you're going to put me to death. You don't like what I've had to say for all this time, and now you want me to tell you the truth. No wonder he says in the Bible, you won't listen. Kind of the understatement of the hour. But he swears secretly. I won't put you to death, nor deliver you into the hands of those who would. Stop there for a second. He's already done this. He's flat out lying to Jeremiah. Because if you move your finger to chapter 35, verse 38, verse 5, he did that with the other officials that put him in the cistern. So he gives them the same prophecy. Jerusalem's going to fall to the king of Babylon. Unless you defect to them now, you will live. If you don't, you will die. But what is the important part? Verse 20. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you. This is the third time in person that God has orchestrated a circumstance of events to give grace to somebody who will not hear it. Does God, look at the, how exterminate the crazy circumstances that God goes through to get grace to this king. And by the way, the contract with the prophet didn't have this in the fine print. You're going to go into a cistern, you're going to have a, bread, a loaf of bread a day. They're going to try to kill you. They're going to manipulate you. They're going to say religious stuff. Will you pray for me? What's the word of the Lord? Look at the extent in which God says, go spread my word.
Chapter 38, verse 28. Jeremiah is left in prison until Jerusalem is taken. Not the retirement plan I'm sure he looked for. He spent 20 plus years weeping and prophesying for a people that he loved, his neighbors, his friends. They won't listen at all. But God has gone through an incredible extent to get this message to them. And the footnote, one chapter, I mean, this is where I love the Bible and I kind of get frustrated. If I was Jeremiah and I, I'd spin out the rest of the story and is in prison, I'd like with some cool details how it was good. But the end of the story is Jeremiah is left in prison until Jerusalem is taken. God's saying, my word comes true. I keep Jeremiah in prison. They will not listen. And sure enough, king of Babylon comes and does what Jeremiah has been saying. Imagine looking through that through the, through the bars in the window going, yep, there, yep, that's right, I told you. Meanwhile, sitting there with one loaf of bread where the water's running out. While King Jehoiakim is outright dismissive, King Zedekiah portrays himself to God as some kind of person that's interested but plays both of his religious cards and his social prowess. At least Jehoiakim was upfront and honest. He didn't pretend. He listened. <coughs> he listened, but he immediately burnt the account of God's word, the message of God's grace before judgment. If you're playing the part of Jehoiakim here this morning, rest assured that we're going to play the role of Jeremiah and his scribe to continue the hard work of bringing the good news of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and promise return to you. Did you hear me? If you're that cat this morning, that person this morning says, I'm here just because i got to be, and I just like God, you know, but I don't want anything to do with his word. I'm going to burn it as soon as I get it. Cool. At least you're honest. At least tell me that. I like that stuff. But rest assured... That God has said, go again, go again, do it again, do it again. And that's what we want to do. So don't be surprised, even if you hate God, that we still come to you and say, God loves you. God died for you. God's coming back. Now, if you're playing the part of Zedekiah this morning, listen carefully. We will mate with you. We will listen to you. I want to share the God's word of grace, love, and judgment to you. But God has always called for obedience, and we want to walk alongside you no matter what your stage of spiritual maturity. But don't be surprised when the heartfelt question of, could you please pray for me? Or, can I hear from something from God this morning? Will eventually be met with hard questions. The hard questions of, what have we told you and taught you? What does that look like in your life? Over time, we walk together, and we're cultivating obedience to God's word, and it's this King Zedekiah story. I want it when it's cool on Sunday morning, but I don't want it at Tuesday at 3 in the afternoon. That's where leadership and those who disciple you and those who love you and carry you say, where are you at? You say this one day, but you're not here this. That's the tragedy of the story of the king who wanted to play both sides. And what does God do with Jeremiah? Clear through that. Go again. Go again, just like he did with you. They burn it, but you're going to do it again. But I'm going to give you three personal encounters with him to share grace of God with them. But the essential fact to get absolutely clear this morning is that God uses people to take his word to people. God is going to use people 
to reach people. Jeremiah was called upon to dictate, communicate, and equip those who would deliver God's message. Jeremiah was called upon not once, not twice, but three times to go to a manipulative, backstabbing king who would eventually not even listen. God is calling each of us to communicate, to equip, to train up, to disciple others to do the exact same thing. Everyone, we got to go. We got to go and communicate God's word in spite of the audience and in spite of the circumstance. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web. Calagrace.org.